You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Welcome to today's Steve Day Show podcast powered by CRTV here on Westwood One, iTunes, and Stitcher. My name is Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here as well. We would love it if you would join us. Let us know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Last name is spelled D E A C E. And we just wrapped up our show today for CRTV as we continue our series to open up 2018. Our focus this year, of course, as we told you already, is worldview. So we're opening it up by sort of laying the groundwork, the framework, the foundation for this conversation. We're going to have sort of just running along the course of, of, of of this coming year. And we look today at pragmatism. And the montage that Aaron put together for the CRTV show today on this topic, they've all been really good. But today's is especially poignant. If you're not a subscriber already to CRTV, today's a great opportunity to do it. Use my name as a promo code, DACE, D-E-A-C-E, and you won't just get a discounted annual subscription to CRTV to access our show, but all of the shows, and we have a ton of them now, and there's more coming. So we're very excited about the growth here at CRTV, which includes our bedrock, uh, the great one, Mark Levin, Phil Robertson of Duck Dynasty fame, and then there's us, and and so much more. CRTV.com, promo code DACE, because this series uh, is meant to be viewed alongside the listening of this podcast. If you're only getting this podcast, which is great, we appreciate it. You know, if you've never left us a positive review before, please do so at uh, either Stitcher or iTunes because people do read those and they do help to get the word out about our show. But that's only a half of the equation. That's why we call these podcasts uh, and, and the role they play in this series, Digging Deeper, because where we really put the shovel in the ground is on the television side to truly explain the worldview we're talking about, why it's deadly. And then in this podcast here, gentlemen, we apply it further and see where it is most prevalent or sometimes has its most subtlety in its prevalence in our culture today. When you look at pragmatism, though, I want us to hone in on one particular part of the culture where this idea that the ends justifies the means. To each according to his abilities, for each according to his needs. Uh, this sort of utilitarian ethic, where it is the most applicable and the most prevalent, is in our politics. And I wish I could say it's, it's, it's just those guys in Washington that none of us like, right? But the problem is we live in a representative republic. We are still voting for these people. We're nominating them. And then after nominating them, we're complaining if I wish we had better candidates. And then after saying they're all corrupt, we're returning them back to office at over 90% of the time. So, yes, they're a problem. But... The, the systemic problem is the culture that keeps churning them out, keep, the assembly line that keeps spitting them out, the people that keep voting them in. Why are we doing this? Well, I think there's lots of reasons. But I think chief among them is how pragmatism has become our default setting. It's our, it's our perpetual cultural status update in America today. And... One line of thinking particularly illustrates this, and it is the notion 
of the lesser of two evils. So what I want us to do on the podcast today is I want us to provide our audience with a handy dandy voter guide for the lesser of two evils. (laughs) I'll take that as I can't wait to do this one, boss. You had me at hello. Better than talking about Hillary. <laughs> hey, uh, we could do a worse topic, so already we are- Better than Oprah. The, that's right. It's already the worst of to the lesser of two evils. I'm sure there's a worse topic than this. Aaron, making in tables. Go. <laughs> it's better than uh, coffee tables. Yes. All right. So let's begin by defining it. Aaron, define for me. The lesser of two evils. The lesser of two evils is the notion that uh, if you pick this option, it's uh, bad, but it's less bad than option B. How do we know it's less bad? Because uh, somebody told me, and I think so. (laughs) I think we're done here. (laughs) Well, that's going to do it for today's podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Todd, define for me. Lesser of two evils. What is it? Uh... The other thing in the binary choice that is there and isn't the one I really, really don't like. You guys are struggling to define this, aren't you? I mean, you're searching for the right words. It's, it, it reminds me of the old uh, Kentucky versus Sanford obscenity case from the early 70s. Where I can't remember, I think it was Harry Blackman was the judge who, when he was asked to define obscenity, said, you know, I, I can't define it, but I know what it is when I see it, right? Okay. You guys' definition sounded a little bit like that. Like, you could clearly pick it out. But verbalizing it, quantifying it, is in and of itself like trying to nail jello to a wall, isn't it? It's slippery. It's, it's, it's putty. Mm-hmm. Well, it's because since it actually has the word evil in it, it's actually masquerading as if it is some sort of moral equation. But right. what it really is, it's working in a moral vacuum. Right. That's, that's, and that's what makes it hard. When we live in a moral vacuum, it's hard to define anything because nothing is certain. Right. Nothing is certain. I wrote a column, Rush Limbaugh, and he ended up reading it on his show a few years ago when I went back to what Webster's Dictionary, I think it was in 1821 or something, um, how it defined terms that we use today. And... I'm reminded of the oft-quoted meme from The Princess Bride. I don't think that means what you think it means, right? Um, A lot of stuff that previous generations just assumed were how things were defined are now defined differently or not defined at all or totally fluid. I mean, right now we're having a debate in America about whether or not the president of the United States is mentally competent to do his job. (laughs) We're having this debate. Now, I I don't have a problem having the debate, right? I do have a problem, though, having a president's mental competency judged by people who believe an 11-year-old girl or boy can decide to change their gender. Here, here. I have a problem with that. If you want to tell me you think Trump's narcissism is going to his head, I, as a standalone entity, I, I think there's some evidence for that. But if that then becomes a, a question of mental competency from people that think you know, my seven-year-old girl's a tomboy. That must mean she was she was meant. Biology got it wrong. She was meant to be a he. That's probably not the standard of competency we're looking for, Obi Wan. See where I'm going with this? Yes. So I ask again: What is the lesser of two evils, Todd? Do you really know? Does anybody really know? No, because there's no such, when we're talking about this, there's no such thing as good or evil because everything is relative or subjective to the, uh, so um, evil is in the eye of the beholder. Let's apply this to an election. Let's say you're pro-life, Todd. 
one candidate says, I will kill every unborn baby you allow me to. Another candidate says, I will only kill half of the ones you allow me to. Is the one who will kill, and let's, let's put a number on that, right? Because we still perform on average about 3,800, I think is the number. So let's just, we'll even round it down to be kind. That's 3,000 abortions a day times 365. Do the math, Aaron. You've been to college the most recently. What's oh. 365 times 3,000? Is that about 100,000? Uh, 365 hmm. times 3,000. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So Over. roughly 100,000 babies a year. Okay. One candidate says, I'm going to take your money and your law, and I'm going to kill 50,000 babies if you vote for me. Another candidate says, I will kill 100,000 babies, all of them, if you let me. Which one is the lesser of two evils? Has the person who will kill fewer babies prayed about it? Do they feel real good about where they're at right yeah. now? Yes. That's how it would be justifiable. This person is, you know, that's basically a decent person. Because presumably— they wish they'd saving as many as they could. Presumably, you don't want to vote for the person who would kill all 100,000 babies because you don't want to vote for a murderer, right? Right. What do you call someone that murders 50,000 babies? What are they called? Child murder. What do you call— What number would be the lesser— 40,000, 30,000, 25, 99,900, let's 99,000, the other guy says, I'm going to kill 99,999 of them, and the other one says, I'll kill 100,000, all 100,000, which one's the lesser of two evils? Can't quantify this. Which one's pro-life? The one who kills all but one? the one who kills them all, the one who kills only half. See, where we struggle with this within a Judeo-Christian worldview is our Messiah comes at us with the viewpoint of leaving 99 behind to find one lost sheep. It has been a theme reoccurring in many great hymns in the church that even if I were the only sinner Jesus could have saved with his sacrifice, he still would have done it just for me. Well, that that runs totally contrary to the utilitarian ethical system that we apply to, you know, only how we determine what a human life is, what a gender is, what a right is, what a law is. Other than that, you know, I think this is a, you know, a pretty cool, you know, fun little frivolous exercise we're doing here. We hand eighth graders and ninth graders across the fruited plain an ethical test. We tell them there's 10 people in a boat. Here are their biographies. They're stranded out at sea. The boat will sink unless we get rid of, pick a number, three, four, five. You decide which ones have to go. This is, this is, a, this is a pragmatic utilitarian ethic. The Judeo-Christian ethic is the men look at the women and children and say, we will sacrifice ourselves for you because that's our responsibility in the created order. The older man who's lived a long life doesn't wait to have his number called. He stands up out of honor and says, I've lived a long life. I'll sacrifice myself for the next generation. Just like soldiers in previous generations sacrificed themselves for me so I could become the next generation. That's totally out of the equation now, though. You decide who comes and goes. You decide. What is the lesser of two evils? How do we vote for it? How do we know? See, I think it's fake news. I think the lesser of two evils is Xanadu. Shangri-La. It doesn't exist. It's Atlantis. It doesn't exist, guys. I think it is completely and totally a satanic fallacy. 
in order for us to ingest the spirit of the age subconsciously and come to a collective agreement in our collective cultural consciousness that we can't possibly aspire to be better than we are. See, the, the, the beauty of this fallacy is it's both fake and real at the same time. Every choice we will make as human beings on some level is the lesser of two evils. All of you that are married right now, no matter how much you love your spouse, that includes the two of us sitting here and on, on this set here, Todd and I that are married. All of you married right now, no matter how much you love your spouse, you are married to the lesser of two evils on one front. And they are the same. They are also married to that. There's always somebody better than you. There's always somebody worse than you. But when you wanted to marry her or you wanted to marry him, chances are that's probably not what you were thinking at the time. How many of you were lured by a proposal that said, you know, your biological clock is ticking. You're not getting any younger here, you know? Probably time to move on to the next stage of life. I don't see anybody else is going to ask you. I mean, that guy over there has got a worse job than me. I guess you can go for him instead. How many of you had proposals like that? Last night during the national championship game, one of the starting linemen for the University of Alabama held off a reporter that wanted to interview him on the field after winning the national title on the last play of the game in overtime. And you know why he wanted to hold the reporter off? Because he had given the engagement ring he had bought for his fiance to a team manager and had him hold it in case we won, he said. If we win, I'm going to ask her right here. And so lo and behold, they pull it out. The manager runs over around the field trying to find this lineman in the midst of this huge rush of this massive confetti and everything else, hands him the ring, and right there on, on the field, he proposes to her. Now, if you have little girls, Todd, you have four, I have two. If you have been a little girl, that is the proposal or the kind of thing you have envisioned, something momentous, something like that. Not, uh, we're going to get a better deal. No, it doesn't get any better. I mean, I suppose, you know, could be worse. Could it be worse? Well, of course it could be worse. Could your wife be married to somebody worse than you, Todd? Yes. Yeah. Could you be married to somebody worse than her? Yes. Yeah. And that's the, and that is quantifiable universally so. But when you sought to make this arrangement and bring this relationship together, was that what you were thinking? No. You were aiming higher. You were thinking about how much knowing, acknowledging we are flawed people. But your aim was when we, when we make this connection, it will make my life, your life, our lives together better than they currently are. Not, not that this is simply the best we could possibly hope for. The same is true in the voting booth, gentlemen. There's always worse candidates than the ones we have now. There's always better candidates than the ones we have now. I bet when people were voting in the John Adams-Thomas Jefferson election of 1804, some farmer in rural Vermont was grumbling, I can't believe we fought a revolution for crappy candidates like this. Right? We look back on those guys now and want to build freaking statues to them. <laughs> okay? Boxer and whiskey rebellions thought they were criminal thugs. Betraying the principles we had just fought for against the Redcoats. The difference is, we are making the situation worse when we verbalize going in an expectation that it won't get any better. Better than Hillary is a terrible standard. Because at the same time, you're telling me that you think Hillary Clinton's a terrible person. Why, therefore, would you subconsciously choose to make that which you admit is terrible to be the plumb line in determining what ethical and moral decisions you should make? 
Well, and see, the minute I say this, many of you listening will jump right away. You'll, you'll skip nine steps in the equation. And you'll jump right to the end like the true utilitarian pragmatists you are disciples of. And say, what do you want me to do, Dave? Just stay home and let Hillary win? Did I say anything about staying home and letting Hillary win? No. No. Did I ever advocate once staying home and letting Hillary win? No. Over the last year of that election? No, I did not. Who assumed that if I didn't, if it, that the opposite of better than Hillary was staying home and letting, letting Hillary win? Who jumped to that assumption? Uh, you folks did. I didn't. How does the whole environment change if you say, you know, I looked at the names that Trump put out that he wants to nominate to the federal bench. And that's, that's an important issue. That's one of our last lines of defense of our belief system. And yeah, I recognize up front that, you know, Trump's kind of sketchy when it comes to keeping his word. But man, even if he only keeps his word on a few of those, those are dramatically better choices. And so I'm going to vote for that. Say so we're changing, changing the whole jet stream of the conversation now. We're raising our collective expectation level. We're not, we're not, we're not cockroaches circling, circling unclean filth in the corner of a decrepit kitchen floor. We're not vultures circling a carcass on the interstate. But we're assuming that things can do better. And that even flawed people, whether their names be Trump or anybody else, can do and be better than they currently are because we're raising our collective expectations. You've coached youth sports, Todd, as have I. You ever started off telling the kids, hey, we're probably not going to be that good this year, you know? Um, How does that message resonate, do you think? I don't know because I never do it. Of course not. Of course not. I put expectations on the kids I coach. I mean, I took a kid on my flag football team last year who, you know, had the best arm on our team but had never played quarterback at all, was the fifth, sixth grade kid with kind of the earring, kind of the cool hip kid. And I gave him the playbook playbook, playbook, and I said, hey, my expectation for you is you're one of the bigger kids on the team, you have one of the better arms on the team, kids should look up to you. So you're going to learn this playbook and you're going to be the quarterback next game. I didn't yell at him, I didn't scream at him. But I clearly put a level of expectation on him, and I said, now it's your responsibility, your job, to live up to that expectation because you won't be letting me down. You're going to let yourself down and your teammates down. That's different than going to him and saying, you know, I'm not, you got the best arm in the team, but you're kind of slow. You don't run that fast. I'm not really sure where to play you. So I guess I'll just play you at quarterback because I don't know what else to do. You see where I'm going with this? Sure. Which one do we often take into the political process? Which vantage point? Which perspective do you think? The first one I articulated or the last one? Oh, or the one you're not putting the kid at uh, quarterback to because you think it's best for him and or the team. It's just a like you said, it's a default setting. Yes. It, it, you you back into it. We assume every one of we, we assume the best we can get out of our politicians is that they can be the right fielder in our on our little league team, which of course everybody knows. If you've ever played little, played little league, right field is the official dumping ground. Why? Because there's not too many lefty kids to kids at that age hit to the opposite field purely by accident. <laughs> All right. So that guy can't hurt you that much because he's not going to see that much action. See, right field's the dumping ground of every Little League team. And that's what we assume. That's how we treat our politicians. They're right fielders on a Little League team. They couldn't possibly do better. They couldn't possibly be better. Worse yet, we couldn't possibly demand better, Aaron. That's the real issue. We couldn't demand better. And then what happens, I've heard this argument, well, we'll just get this person elected now because they're not as bad as a Democrat, then we'll hold them accountable. You know, it's been funny too. Every time I've tried to hold that person accountable after they've gotten elected, the very same people who told me, we just got to get this person elected because they're better than the Democrat, and then we'll hold them accountable. You know what's funny, Aaron, is they've often been the very first people to push back against me holding that person accountable mm-hmm. after they get elected. And, they go, and the dog returns to its own vomit, and they go right back to, why are you making it harder on them? 
You act like you act like you wanted the other person to win. This is all an outcome-based ethic. It's not an ethic attempting to impact outcomes. And those are two totally different things. A Judeo-Christian worldview is an ethic attempting to alter and impact outcomes. Pragmatism, this pagan utilitarianism, is an outcome impacting your ethics. Because I fear this outcome, I will change my ethical stance and belief. And then we will do the time warp again. We will, ha- we will bitch it. We'll have all the same bitches, all the same moans, all the same complaints, all the same put downs, all the same cynicism, and we'll just wash, rinse, and repeat and do it again two, four, and six years later. You know, a perfect example. I love what you said. If you do this, it will, the outcomes will get worse. Yep. Is that ever been more true than what we just saw with uh, a bunch of conservatives? rooting for uh doug jones in alabama to win isn't that yeah i mean that that was an outcome that they weren't just making peace with based on a really garbage situation many of them were advocating for it say they would vote for him you highlighted several shows many times the the one who was definitely going to, I mean, he, he was a Bill Crystal yesterday talked about, how, talked about how what a good president Oprah Winfrey yes, would same be. Same thing, same thing. Now, I think she would be an unbeatable candidate, but, but that's like saying, I think this Category 5 hurricane will devastate the town. I'm not rooting for the Category 5 hurricane, guys. I'm just telling you, that hurricane's a son of a motherless goat. It's going to suck. She would be an unbeatable candidate, and she would, it would also be essentially like putting a pagan priestess in the White House at the exact same time. But that's different than Bill Kristen, Bill Crystal lauding her as and her virtues as a candidate. That's exactly right. It's one thing to say, my conscience is very troubled by the allegations against Roy Moore. I can't vote for him. It's another thing to then say, you know, Doug Jones, who's openly telling me he's a Nancy Pelosi Democrat running in Alabama, is going to kill a whole bunch of kids and 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 use government to tell me I can't tell what a gender is. I'm going to vote for him instead be, because I'm disgusted by the allegations against Roy Moore. I will then vote for a guy like Doug Jones because I'm disgusted that Roy Moore allegedly had made sexual advances on underage girls. I'm going to change my ethic and now vote for a candidate who will kill girls before they even come of age, before they're born. That is an example of what you're talking about. Yes. These out try as you might. This is uh, well, pragmatism ultimately then what you're saying is too it's too smart by half. You think you ultimately yes. are controlling the outcomes and perhaps you are to some degree in the near term, but you are creating a mo- a Frankenstein's monster that you it's can It's the Faustian bargain of, yes. of, of 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 ancient fables and tales. Yes, it's it's the it's Daniel Webster cutting his deal with the devil. Yes. The the check always comes due in the end, Uncle Bingo. You may think you're getting over with it right now. Yes. I'm sure over I'm sure I'm sure Steve Bannon swallowed a lot of bile where Donald Trump is concerned for the last couple of years, and he did it to get a seat at his table. How's that working out for him now? Exactly. He's being destroyed on a daily basis. And how many people have we seen, how many of the the people that were the most willing to throw their panties at Trump have been destroyed in the last year and a half, have we seen? And the number won't stop. It, this, this path seems like it works for a while. But in the end, it's always our undoing. It's always our unraveling. Always. I can't think of a time that this has actually worked for somebody in this life or the next. And you know why it doesn't work in, the, in this life or the next? Because there's an ultimate judge of this life and the next. That's why. And even if you think you're getting over on it in this life, you don't get over on it. In the next. And the reason we accept this viewpoint is because we either pretend or we have rejected the notion that there is an ultimate judge of this life and the next. And to, to bring this home, literally, uh, you've talked, I, I believe, within uh, this series we're doing about uh, uh, the importance of, of family. Look at all the uh, pragmatic um, justifications fathers make about 
uh, career, things like that. Yeah, you were just talking about about uh, you know trying to, to to balance that in your own life. That was off off air. That's right. We were having that conversation. But all the all the conversations in their own head, fathers have about putting their career first. And while I'm doing this for my family, and and then your your kids don't know you, they don't respect you. Ultimately, you're 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 you become distant at home because you don't know how to relate with them. It, so for those who might be thinking this is esoteric, it's it's the furthest thing from that. I mean, this is rubber meets the road stuff when you get up and you look your wife in the eye uh, and, and while you're raising your children. Many people listening would assume pragmatism is doing what works. Let's go with that definition for a moment. If that is the accepted definition then tell me what is more pragmatic than doing the very best you can do as often as you can do it to line up your values your virtues and your decision making with the only undefeated being in the history of the cosmos is there anything more pragmatic than that is there anything more pragmatic than saying, you know, um, I'm going to do what the most powerful and only omniscient and omnipotent being in the universe says to do. Because he's more powerful, more knowing um, uh, and than me. What's more pragmatic than that? But see, we often don't look at it that way. Because one requires what we talked about yesterday, Humility. Darwinism and, and pragmatism is the firstborn child of Darwinism, as we explained on the TV show today. Darwinism has destroyed our humility. I literally had someone hashtag MAGA somebody on Twitter the other day tweet to me, you know, if you'd get over the fear of God and embrace God more, you might be better off. I'm like, you've never read Romans or you've never read Proverbs 1, have you? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes. You know, and I looked at the word fear, you know, and I, I was funny when I looked at all the word origins and the various he, uh, Hebrew and, and Greek and Latin translations for that word. And you know what it translates to? Uh, fear. Uh, it translates to fear. Yeah. It's, fear means uh, fear. It's funny you bring this up because I was thinking, I don't think pragmatism is anywhere in the scriptures, the term pragmatism, but when... You read uh, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Mm -hmm. They're talking about pragmatism. Yes. Now, what kind of fear are we talking about? Like a cowering fear? No. Every knee shall bend. It's it's the fear of recognition of your place in the cosmos and the universe. It's the same kind of a, a, a human derivative of this fear is when you would be home for summer vacation goofing off and disobeying your mama. And your dad's off at some job site when it's 175 degrees in the shade, roofing, doing some construction work, putting up with a boss he can't freaking stand. And he's doing it, why, for you? To put food on your table, a roof over your head. And you're clowning all day. You're, on your, you're up in your mom's grill all day. You're being disobedient. And your mom would look at you and say what when she's had enough? What would she often say? Wait till your daddy gets home. Oh, wait till your dad gets home. It's that kind of fear. It is the recognition of, oh, snap. Old man ain't going to be happy when he comes home. You want to see my mood change in a nanosecond? You want to see me go from Bruce Banner to the Incredible Hulk? Have me get a text or a call from my wife on my way out of here. And I'm anxious to get home and see my family and have the dog lose its mind and get caught up and hang out with the kids. Have her call me or text me and tell me, I need you to deal with these children when you get home. Oh, dude. Dude. The last thing I want to do is take all the hate and spite we take for what we stand for in my job every day and then come home. When I want to come home and I want to be a conquering hero... I want people to, I want my family that I'm doing this for to recognize and admire their old man and want to spend time with him. And you tell me that while I'm here taking poop with my mouth open from the culture all day, 
I got to come home because you wouldn't do something like clean your room, finish your homework, not mouth off to your mama. Oh, no, don't do that. That's, that will change my mood real quick, real quick. That's the kind of fear we're talking about. Jesus describes it in the parable of the talents, the master who comes home to settle accounts, who has given you talents that he expects you to capitalize on while he is away. And now he is anxious to see what you have done with that. He alone is responsible for providing for you. And, and he is just as happy for the one who's done even a little bit with it as he is with the one who's done a lot with it, that you tried to take that which I bled and fought and for to give to you, and you tried to capitalize on it, honors me as your father, as your master. But to the one who says, I didn't trust you, I, I thought you were a wicked taskmaster and did not come by these talents honestly, so I hid mine. I was lazy. I was complacent. I was pragmatic. Master is not happy with that servant. It's that kind of fear. And it is sorely lacking in our culture today. Sorely lacking. Hubris is who we are as a people today. There's an ancient word for it you see in the scriptures. We are a stiff-necked people. That's what we are. We don't want to bow. We don't want to bend. And we don't think we have to. There are no... While I am sympathetic to the millennial generation's disdain for how we have made compromises for political purposes overall... That millennial generation also has yet to learn because many of them haven't owned a business. Many of them haven't been married. Many of them haven't had to raise a family. They haven't had to learn yet what the, that the real world doesn't always offer us the perfect choice. Doesn't always offer us the ideal outcome one way or the other. It doesn't always offer us things cut and dried, black and white. Often it will offer us the lady or the tiger. Often it will offer us you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. But when you're sitting back in your hipster glasses and your skinny jeans and your designer coffee and you haven't, ha- you haven't raised, you're not raising a kid. You don't own a business where other people's, other people's livelihoods depend on your output, your productivity. Where you don't have a spouse that depends on you emotionally, materialistically. When you don't have those things, it's real damn easy to sit there and backseat drive the older generations that have walked 10,000 miles of field ahead of you at the same time. And so while their complaints about our compromises are often true, they also often come from a place of ignorance. For you and the millennial generation, if you don't believe you're going to face a world that offers you all the same false choices we get offered all the time, then you are beyond, you're dangerously naive. In fact, your false choices will be even more false than ours were because the culture is not getting any better. This is why how we frame these choices, how we communicate them is so vital in raising the overall expectation level so we get better choices later on. If you demand from Donald Trump that he's better than, to be better than Hillary, guess what you will get? Better than that which you think ought to be in prison. Does Donald Trump have a better chance of being a good president if we ask that of him or if we ask him to be better than Hillary? What do you think, Aaron? Probably if we just ask him to be good, period. Hmm. And actually have a working definition of good instead of just our own. But Todd, when we go in right away negotiating down, right away... What will the outcome be? Those are the laws of sowing and reaping. We quoted from earlier, right? We will always reap what we sow. If we assume the best we can do is blank, 
that's the best we will get. You are describing why I'm not just having fun when I said in 2016 that 2017 would be worse and why I've said 2018 will be worse than 2017. This show is why I am certain of it. It, it, is, it will spiral out of control. You are continually setting the bar so low that you can't help but continue to go lower. Yes. Yes. That's perfectly said. How about setting the bar higher? And that doesn't mean we have to meet that bar every time, but man, if we're closer to it than we were before, yes. Because we're progressing towards what? The higher bar. Rather than settling it, setting it low and deciding that's the best we can get. Human nature will live up or down to the expectation level you set for it. Period. Period. Isn't the, since ultimately this is the closest we've come to talk about politics, isn't the only way to really get the ball rolling on this is to not to be totally unpragmatic and not care at all i mean at all about winning and losing for a while yes and no define winning and losing can I we mean, even winning, define that winning most and losing of us define winning by did the, did the did the party i wanted to win win right to what end We've reduced. Right. See, we've reduced this to a sporting event. Right. We're at, we're at the point now that we that we have we have we have so kneecapped ourselves in the lesser of two evils that it's now really the evils of two lessers. Mm-hmm. See, I would make the argument even that conversation sort of feeds into this. Go back to what Aaron said. Define winning. Define good. What is it? Now let's not be unrealistic. Let's not assume Donald Trump's going to wake up tomorrow and be, uh, you know, the Archangel Michael. Okay? So, you have to understand people, can, people can't know more than they know. They can't be better than they, than they are. We have to recognize what is possible. But I think a lot more is possible than we think it is. Because I hear all the time, politics is the art of the possible by the people that are making it less and less possible for us to do good. Why isn't politics the art of the possible for those of us that want to do good? Because we go in assuming that we cannot. Or we don't even know what good is. Or we've decided good is, my team wins. I get a, I'm, I'm majority whip now. My candidate won the nomination. That's what good is. All of that is an outcome-based ethic. All of that is. As opposed to an ethic that impacts an outcome. I'll leave you guys with this. Do you know who does the best job of having an ethic that impacts an outcome? The Rainbow Jihad does. Mm-hmm. They're the best in the culture, and it's not even, there's not a close second. They have, they have never lowered their bar. Now, they don't hit their bar all the time. But by never lowering their bar, they have gotten much closer to it than anybody else has. And they have a level of conviction, those of us with a Judeo-Christian worldview, frankly, just do not. And they're not trying to use... They're trying to use education as a means of evangelism and proselytization. They're not trying to use the political outcome as a means to do it. Rather, they view politics as the result of their faith and ethics in action. They have an ethic that is impacting the outcome. They have not allowed the outcome to impact their ethic. They lose an election, they get right back tomorrow and just assume, well, it just means we're going to win bigger the next time. Because they can't fancy or, or contemplate an alternative. Because th- where their ethic would not ultimately reign. We have none of that. None. We can't contemplate that that would even be true. And even that's why when you outnumber a movement 100 to 1, that's how you lose to them. Because in any war, the side with the greatest conviction about its cause always wins. 
Rome didn't win because it had iron, more iron than the than the pagan peoples it conquered, whether they be in Egypt or uh, in Gaul. You know what they won? When they went to war, when they went to battle, did they scream, "We've got iron"? These barbarians are throwing wooden spears. Is that what they scream? That what they scream, Todd? For the glory of Rome. They had a cause. They had a conviction. They believed in the supremacy of their civilization. Alexander the Great. Nobody was really going to volunteer to help some pimply-faced 23-year-old kid conquer the frickin' Fertile Crescent. I don't care if you studied with Plato or not. Hellenization? The idea that my Greek culture is superior and would bring enlightenment to barbarians? Now that, yeah, that, I love that. That's a significance. That's a purpose. It's a mission. The early church? Why did so many of them willingly die for what they believed? It's the significance of the purpose of the mission, their own conviction. And they changed an empire without lifting one sword on pure conviction alone when we took on the redcoats it was said the sun never sets on the british empire it's set at yorktown baby why because we wanted this land more than they wanted to fight to keep it that's why we had more conviction for this cause than they did why did a bunch of ragtag um, Muslims who wanted to still be the 8th century defeat the dreaded Soviet empire that most of our childhood we were deathly afraid of every day, Todd? How did they do it? They wanted to live in those caves and uh, in those uh, sand cinder blocks more than the uh, Soviet soldiers did. They had greater conviction for their cause. So why, why if your state decides that we're going to not allow someone to potentially rape our children in a public bathroom by upholding the standards of decency and gender recognition, why does your state lose millions upon millions upon millions of dollars in concert and um, uh, sporting events for its economic benefit? Why? Because you don't have the conviction to stand up to those people. That's why. Conviction always wins and you know why it always wins because it wins the long war most people no matter how big mighty and powerful they are really don't have a stomach for long protracted conflict they want a quick win and move on to the next experience conviction of the willingness to suffer always wins always wins always so you know why we are slowly and increasingly now losing our way of life? We have no conviction. We're not willing to win a long war. We think every election cycle, if the right number of Republicans or this or that doesn't win, then the whole thing ends. That's why you lose. In any, at any poker table, whoever cares the least about losing almost always wins. In any business negotiation, one of the ways Trump built his fortune, all in, every time, all in, because I don't think you have any balls. I don't think he's just called people on not having any nutsack for his entire adult life. And it almost always worked, because most guys don't. Most don't. Uh, see, I don't think you have, you know what? I don't think you have the balls to outbid me for that piece of Manhattan property. And then when I outbid you, it may not even be worth what I bid it for, but I'm going to make sure every newspaper in town talks about how I outbid you and I put you in a fetal position. Or as Trump likes to say, I beat you like a dog. Like he's saying about Bannon right now. Closing thoughts, Todd. Well, we talked on the television show about uh, how pragmatism is kind of the water that most people uh, swim in. It's more of a default setting, whereas the other ones are uh, more consciously uh, argued, stated as uh, preferences. Uh, people, these, uh, there are those 
who are the leaders of a pragmatic uh, framework who may be more conscious about it. But now, the, as, you, as Steve called this, the, the first child of uh, Darwinism, we, we have been uh, led to believe as children of pragmatism uh, that the, the easy road, the gated community road, is the one to take. That is entirely antithetical to the gospel, and thus is nothing short of one of the great heresies of our time. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and this is a little bit of a lengthy quote, uh, says in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, I think this is the the opposite of pragmatism. Uh, to be called to a life of extraordinary quality, to live up to it, and yet to be unconscious of it is indeed a narrow way. To confess and testify to the truth as it is in Jesus, and at the same time, to love the enemies of that truth, his enemies and ours, and to love them with the infinite love of Jesus Christ is indeed a narrow way. To believe the promise of Jesus that his followers shall possess the earth, and at the same time, to face our enemies unarmed and defenseless, preferring to incur injustice rather than to do wrong ourselves, is indeed a narrow way. To see the weakness and wrong in others, and at the same time, refrain from judging them, to, to deliver the gospel message without casting pearls before swine, is indeed a narrow way. The way is unutterably hard, and at every moment we are in danger of swaying from it. If we regard this way as one we follow in obedience to an external command, if we are afraid of ourselves all the time, it is indeed an impossible way. But if we behold Jesus Christ going on before step by step, we shall not go astray. I think that paragraph from his book, The Cost of Discipleship, is at its heart the antidote, the opposite of pragmatism. It is indeed the opposite of our culture. That is well said. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. You want to catch the first part of this conversation about today's deadly worldview at CRTV.com. CRTV.com, promo code DACE. Back at it again tomorrow. Until then, John 317. This is Steve Dace. I like it, you.